So today we are entering what we're calling the third movement of the book of Romans. Now, for those of you who are kind of just joining us or just stepping into our journey here, we've been on this book all year long. Literally since the second week of January, we've been studying Romans, and we just finished chapter 8 last week. So if you want to catch up, uh, you can go and download our podcast or go to couragechurch.com and download them if, like, you happen to be taking a road trip to California or something like that. But it's going to be a lot of content, so you're going to need to probably carve out a lot of time if you want to catch up. But uh, we are on chapter 9 now. And just to do a, a brief recap of the breakdown of these movements that we've been kind of breaking this up into, we've said this, chapter 1 through four is how the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And that was what we did January through Easter was that section. And then five through eight is what we just now came out of. And that is how the gospel gives us new life, which we've been there since Easter. And last week we kind of ended on that. And I, I realized at some point you just can't give any more sermons on Romans 8. So you got you to gotta kind of move on a little bit. But we were there for a very long time. And it was very important. It's, it, I know that it seemed long, but like everyone really did feel different. And I feel like they all were very crucial. Then uh, if you, 1 through 4 and 5 through 8 are separate, but they're also kind of in some ways make up one body together that really flow together and prepare us for what God does in 9 through 11, which to be frank, like we've said, is considered to be one of the more complicated passages of scripture in the entire Bible, but it also is one of the most important sets of scriptures in the entire Bible. Uh, and we're going to do some things over the next few sermons in this series to hopefully paint for you a bit of a picture of what was going on, but we're also going to take some time uh, with the specific things that are mentioned. So there's a big picture that we have to understand, but then there's going to be other sermons like today where we just sort of focus on one specific thing that he says or what's going on in that one little thing. Uh, so that's going to be today. But chapter 9 through 11 ultimately is about how Jesus fulfilled God's promise to Israel. And then finally, after you get through all of that, we're going to get into 12 through 16, which is ultimately how the gospel is what will bring unity to the church. And at that point, it becomes a very diverse section of scripture. When we get there, every week will feel different. It'll be, it'll be very practical, and it's going to address some of the most important issues of the day, things like loving our enemies, Things like how we handle authority and how we handle the government. Things like how we, we judging one another. P Paul actually talks about the Holy Scriptures in there themselves and about worshiping God, about diversity and empowerment, and even, uh, and even the shockingly still controversial uh, concept of women in ministry. He addresses that kind of toward the end. Be, and we need to do that because, because a lot of people take some of the other things that Paul says to really use it as weapons against women. In Romans, he kind of goes a different way and we need to focus on that and explain how that all fits together. That's coming much later in this series. Now, one of the reasons that we've committed so much time to study this entire book and to study it so closely is because there are so many huge ideas that speak to many, many different contexts. So even though it might seem like Hey, this is the same book. Yes, it's, it's, there's a lot going on in here. So we've been in Romans for a long time. We're going to be in it for a long time. Uh, but we're, we're going to touch on a broad range of topics, as we, especially as we move into the, the fourth movement. It will diversify even more. So today what we're going to do is we're just going to read six verses. 
We're going to read six verses, and, but really we're only going to talk about the first three. We'll move on after that next week, going through them again. But the first three are the focus. The only reason we're really going to even read through verse six is because verse six uh, says something that's very central to what's going on in this third section of Romans. And that is the phrase, the word of God has not failed. It has not failed. Now, we're not going to spend much time on that today, but it is kind of going to be the center of everything that we try to communicate to you through this, through this part, portion is the word of God has not failed. It might, it might be easy to think in your own life, hey, the word of God has failed me. God said this would happen. It didn't go that way. Whatever that might look like. But I'm here to tell you with 100% certainty, the word of God has not failed. So let's, uh, let's, let's read this together. And one last kind of reminder as we get into this, the, the chapter before this and what we did in Romans 8 uh, is, is essentially it's the most epic, exciting song of praise you ever get from Paul. It's filled with joy. It's filled with hope. It's just this huge declaration that no matter what you do, nothing can separate you from the love of God, just like that song said today. And then it seems like when you get into nine, everything sort of changes in an instant. His tone changes. He seems to move from like amazing praise to like really depressing lament. But this is not just a brand new thought. This section is very important and it fits into the framework that Paul has already built out for us. And that is that nothing in the world, nothing outside of the world, no angels, no rulers, no anything can separate us from the love of God. So this is what 9.1 says, 1 through 6. It says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my, anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory. We've been talking about glory like crazy. The covenants, we talked about that last week. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from their race, this is the big one, according to the flesh, is the Christ. They've got, they brought us Jesus, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So we, we told you in the very first sermon that we did on Romans, in all the letters of Paul that made it into the New Testament, the Old Testament is quoted 89 times. Of all the books, all the letters that he wrote. Now, of that, over 25 of those quotes are actually in Romans 9 through 11. So I believe it's 55 or 51 of them is in the book of Romans, and almost half of them are in, or maybe even more than half, are in Romans 9 through 11. So over 25% of the times that Paul references the Old Testament all land in this, this, these, three, these three chapters, 9 through 11. That includes everything that he wrote. So because of the amount of times that he quotes the Old Testament and the significance of each of them, we're going to take, obviously, a few weeks with this section. Uh, and today, we're not going to try to sort out the whole 
Israel predestination thing. When we get to it, we won't ignore it. Uh, we'll try to walk you through it as best as we can. Uh, Don and I have both been studying this passage. Uh, really, we've been studying all of Romans together for the last year, and she has a really amazing grasp on this. We're working together on that, so I pick her brain when I can, and then when, when, uh, when we can't get her up here, we'll get her up when we can. Other times, I'm at least going to pick her brain on that, because she has a lot for that too. Uh, but rather than getting into all those details, this morning, I really want us to limit our scope to the mindset of the Apostle Paul uh, as he makes probably one of the boldest statements we get in the entire Bible. We read it earlier, uh, and we're going we're gonna to get back to it in a moment. But another key to notice about 9 through 11 is also the word mercy. Uh, the word mercy is, uh, well, the Greek word eleo, uh, which is to have mercy, actually appears in Romans 9 through 11 seven times. And the word eleos, which is the root word uh, uh, for mercy, it's the most common word for mercy, that appears two times in 9 through 11. Uh, Paul only uses each of these two words one other time outside of this. So mercy is a very big deal in this movement as well. We have to, we have to notice that. Kind of how like in the second movement, suddenly we're introduced to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't really talk about the Spirit. Then he talks about it like crazy in five through eight. That's kind of what he does here with mercy. Now mercy is to have active compassion, to put action to our compassion. Compassion, as you know, is a core value uh, at, at our church, and, and we kind of use the definition of compassion as we put ourselves into someone else's skin. We begin to see the world from somebody else's vantage point or, or through their eyes. Uh, so what happens is we, we, when, when we're handling a situation or we're trying to help somebody, what we do is we, we look and think, okay, if this were me in this moment, what would I need in this moment? And that is, of course, then what we do our best to do. And where you don't get the word mercy or the word compassion here in the first three verses, the heart of Paul here clearly is mercy. So he starts by saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I'm, he basically sounds depressed. He says, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. So why the change of heart? What happened? Again, we began to frame this out for you last week, and we'll do it more moving ahead, but Paul is addressing the fact that Israel as a whole rejected and even killed Jesus. And for Israel, they had all these promises the promises of God were given to them, and it seems like these promises have all fallen flat on their face. They don't have a king. They were exiled for 70 years now. Now they're under Roman, or they're out of exile now, but now they're under Roman rule. They'd only recently even been allowed back into Rome since, because Claudius Caesar had them expelled and dispersed them. And then when Nero became Caesar, he allowed them to come back in after five years of that. Uh, and they weren't really buying into this Jesus is the Messiah thing. And if by some chance he was the Messiah, they didn't embrace him as such. In fact, they killed him. But they are still the ones, like Paul says, with the, with the, the covenants, the promises, the patriarchs, and Jesus, the Christ. So Paul wants to make it very clear to Israel, there is still hope for you. There's still hope for you. But again, there is this sense that even though some of the Jews have accepted Jesus, the nation as a whole has rejected him. And Paul, he's just, he's, 
It's broken. Like, when you read this, you can literally feel his just, I mean, he says anguish. Like, you can just feel that he is a person who's just crippled. He's crushed by the news that uh, Israel hasn't accepted Jesus. He's just broken over this. So he makes this absolutely bold statement. He says, if it were up to me, I would honestly consider giving up my own life, giving up my own soul, being separated from God, if that meant Israel could find their way back. The whole thing in eight was nothing can separate you. And now he's saying, I would, be, I would actually consider being separated myself if it meant that they could be whole. The word that he uses here for accursed is the word anathema, which means to bind under a great curse. So today, the word is actually used if like the Pope wants to excommunicate someone from the church. They would anathema them. We also could use the word to describe somebody who's just hated with the most passionate hate. So like if you were to Google what's an anathema or a modern day anathema, the first hit you would most of the time get would be Adolf Hitler. That's an anathema, if that makes sense. But in the ancient world, what would happen with an anathema was this. It was an offering that someone would give to a god. So most of the gods in that day had temples, and what would happen was they would give this offering to the god, and after that offering was dedicated to the god, it would then be hung on the columns or the walls of the temple to that god. Almost like a trophy. So the image that I get in my mind when I think of Paul offering himself as an anathema is that of like, kind of like the image that comes to my mind is Han Solo, right? In the return of the Jedi, when he's frozen, and he's the statue for Jabba the Hutt, and he's just this trophy for this sicko, right? That's the language that Paul is essentially using. Very shocking word that he would choose here to say what he would be willing to allow to happen to him if it meant the Jews could be saved. He said, I would take separation. Now we know from, again, what we studied last week, nothing can separate us. And Paul knows that. But here he's in such desperation for these people that he loves so much that he's saying, you know what? If his separation would mean their salvation, he'd do it. I mean, we all know the phrase, we, all, we, we say, oh, I'd go through hell for you, right? People say that to each other sometimes. Paul literally meant it. He, he was literally, in, in the most literal sense, he was saying this on behalf of Israel. And, and, and as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how this applies to us, and we'll, we'll get there in just a minute, because I know this is sort of like, what? But I, I think this is Paul getting as close to the heart of Jesus as he possibly could, as he ever has. I think that this is Paul completely conformed into the image of the Son of God. As conformed as anybody could possibly get. It's obvious, guys, that Paul is not saying that he wants to be separated from Christ or that he wants to be cut off. No, no. It's very important to understand what he's doing here and with the flow. So we came out of Romans 8. In, in Romans 8, Paul spends quite a while talking about groans too deep for words. And, and, and if you remember that, he talks about how you and I, the church, we are the hope of the world. We are the only ones who have that hope. And, and, and we, it, our job is to make the world a better place. And what do we do when there is nothing we can do to make it better? Like we do the tangible thing, the practical thing when there is an option. But what happens when there's nothing we can do? We pray. We intercede. We go to God on behalf of the broken world. And 
That's what Paul says happens in Romans 8 and what he says to do in Romans 8. And now this is Paul taking himself seriously on that. But this is more than just a prayer with groans too deep for words. This is also an echo of Exodus 32, which Paul references in Romans 1. We talked about it quite a bit when we were talking about the exchange. It's an exchange. See, in Exodus 32... God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, just a brief recap. And when Moses, uh, he, he comes down with the Ten Commandments, and what he finds is that in his absence, Israel had created a golden calf. They'd created an idol that they were worshiping, and they'd taken all of their jewelry, they'd melted it together, and they created this golden calf that they then would worship, saying, these are the gods that brought us out of Israel, which was the, the most important thing to God. When you get the Ten Commandments, the first thing he said is, I am the God who brought you out. Because it shows that God did that before he asked anything of them. First, he did something for them. It was grace. But what was happening was they were saying that they were crediting this weird golden calf that didn't even exist when they were brought out of the land of Egypt as the redeemer that God himself was. So God, he's very, very angry at them about this. And he planned to destroy them over this. That's what it says in Psalm 106. It says God was going to destroy them and he would have had not Moses stood in the breach. Again, we talked about this early, early on. I just want to re reframe some of this. It's the word parets. It's, it's, the, it's the space. It's a spiritual word. It's a, about the space that Christians are called to place themselves right in the middle of between God, between the people that, and whatever they might deserve and say, God, that's not what we do. That's not who you are. And we talked about that concept a few months ago. And we pointed out that part of the reason that at least we believe that the church has had so much separation from the world and had so much separation from culture right now to the point where, honestly, the church is having a hard time getting through to people in our world. We're having a hard time reaching people who aren't saved. The church is really good at like, gathering Christians together and celebrating and having fun, but we're not doing that good of a job of actually like, meeting people where they are and actually showing them love and having them open up to us. And we believe part of the reason for that it's because so long, for, for so long, when we were supposed to be the ones standing in the gap for the broken world, we were the ones throwing stones at the broken world. But the church does not exist to throw stones. We exist to meet people right where we are and to be the bridge to God, to stop anything bad from happening to them and to actually be the bridge that leads them to the love of Jesus. We do not want any harm to come on our neighbors. And if we truly want to embody the heart of Christ the way that Paul did, we even will get to a point in our lives where we're willing to ourselves lose the things that are important to us if it means wholeness for someone else. So in that ancient story, Moses did not let God destroy Israel. In fact, he actually turned it back on God, which is very, very bold. He actually put it to God's character, and he said, God, this would not be who you are. This is, and he actually put responsibility on him. He said, God, you brought them out. You brought them this far. You made a promise to them, and you made a covenant, and you have to keep it. He pleaded with God. In fact, one thing he, but one thing he said this actually, it's almost identical to what Paul says in Romans 9. He says, God, if you decide you won't forgive them, blot me out of your book. Block me out. This heart, the heart that says, I'm willing to lose everything if it means salvation to come to someone else, that Paul is demonstrating here. 
This is huge in understanding what Paul means when we get a little bit later in Romans 12.1, when he starts talking, he says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's your holy worship. Paul is showing us what it looks like to be transformed by the gospel. He's demonstrating it in this instance, even before he says it three chapters later. He says, this is what it looks like. You, you can't just sit back and watch as all your friends ruin their lives. You can't just, you can't just stay by and just be a spectator. You've got to stand in the gap. You've got to support. You've got to be there. You confront when you need to, but you plead with God and you say, God, have mercy whatever it takes. But for most of us, we read these ancient words and we think that's just weird. That's a bold statement. But we don't recognize that there's actually something that God wants to do through this letter to change our lives and the culture of our churches and our communities. There would be no greater example for Jesus than a life that embodies the heart that says, I would actually be willing to lose for them to win, if that's what it takes. Honestly, that is the gospel. That is what Jesus did. The whole thing is Jesus being willing to face the absolute worst case scenario you've ever dreamed of because it meant that everybody else would have what they needed. And it meant that we wouldn't have to go through what he went through. Don and I were at a, a training in Lansing. We get to go to these trainings once a month in Lansing. And we were at one a few months ago. And the speaker, was, he was amazing. And the whole concept was a concept he called win-win. And what he was doing was he was encouraging us all to ask the question, can we find a place in which everybody wins? Like, does somebody always have to lose? Can I win and you win? Or in order for me to win, do you have to lose? And it was amazing, and it was insightful. And there were things that we carried away from that that I hope we can apply to our marriage, and I hope that we can apply it to the ministry and to all of what our community becomes. It really was that impactful to me and to her. And we've talked about it several times since then, and I think that's the heart of God, that we as Christians stop thinking that in order for us to have something, or in order for us to have the life we're supposed to have, or in order for us to win, somebody else has to lose. Like, for, in order for us to go to heaven, someone else has to go to hell. In order for Christians to thrive, other religions or other groups have to be destroyed. Thinking like that is very common, but it does not reflect the heart of Jesus. But this guy who's doing this workshop, he was willing to lose in order for someone else to win, and he still felt like he won. Now that may sound crazy, but I'm gonna give you one of the examples that he gave. So he owns a paint company, a, a paint company, they do their own paint, and they have partnerships with other paint uh, shops, or with other paint suppliers, and they have stores, locations all around the state of Michigan, tons of them, it's a big business. And at one of the locations, there was another paint store just around the corner from them, and that other store had a contract with a very specific type of paint that the speaker's company didn't work with. They didn't use them. So they provided their own paint, but this other company provided this other paint, so that kind of kept them in competition, kept it healthy. But then the speaker's company was approached with a deal with that same supplier 
And that deal was good for all of their stores, all the stores all across Michigan, not just this one location. And so they, 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 so they made a deal, and they actually started offering that same paint as the store from around the corner, which meant that now there was this huge competition, and obviously that frustrated the shop around the corner. It would be detrimental to their business. And there was like a hostility there. They were fighting. It was, I mean, they weren't were fighting. They didn't know each other, but you could tell there was like, it wasn't good. But what this speaker did, who was talking to us, is he asked for a meeting with these paint store owners from around the corner. And he drove to that one location. And these owners came to the meeting and he said that from the very beginning, they were angry. You could tell they were really mad. They didn't want to be there because they assumed, okay, they're going to just offer to buy us out. And if we don't take the deal, then we're going to close anyway, because that's kind of the trajectory they were on. This other company was much bigger. But that's not what he offered. Instead, he proposed to them that he closed down his own store. And in return, all they would do is they would add his paint, the paint that his company serves, sells, to their line. They'd add that to what they sell. So he called that a win-win because he closed his own shop. So he closed his own store, and they would keep selling the paint that they already sell, but they would also add his line to it as well. Now, he called that a win-win because he's an incredibly good dude who cares deeply for people and wants to represent the kingdom of God with integrity. And I'm sure that there was an element of winning there, but ultimately, he took a hit to keep that other company in business that he had no interest in whatsoever. Again, I'm sure there was some win, but he was willing to lose a little to make sure he wasn't the one that did that to them and put them out of business. And that, that story really, really stuck with me. Because what is it? It's mercy. Didn't need to do it. He did not need to do it, but it was a person whose bottom line was not himself. It was a person who's able to look through the eyes of someone who was somebody else someone who was afraid that they were going to lose everything and then give them exactly what they needed in that moment. And in doing so, he began a relationship. He established a relationship that literally was built on the foundation of saying, you know what? I care about what happens to you. Paul loved the people of Israel. He loved them so much that he just like Jesus, would literally have laid down his life on their behalf because Paul truly lived conformed into the image of the Son of God. And my charge to us today is just that. Can we be agents of mercy in our world? Can we pray for our community as if we actually care about our community more than we do about ourselves? Can we begin walking through the streets and walking through town with eyes that see the brokenness, with hearts that are ready to be the solution to that brokenness? You know, a lot of people, a lot of people live like Israel. They think, if all this is true, if the gospel is true, if Jesus really is God, that doesn't mean anything good for me because I've rejected Jesus my whole life. I haven't followed Jesus. But that is what makes Paul's gospel message so beautiful. The message is, come to Jesus. 
come to Jesus no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, it does not matter. Lay your brokenness at his feet and you will not be condemned. And nothing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God. Paul's kind of central idea of Romans, that big centerpiece that we spent a long time on, Romans 8, 28 and 29. We're summarizing it like this. All things work together for good by means of those who have been conformed into the image of the Son of God. So he says it there in Romans 8, and then he embodies it here in Romans 9. He says, I will treat Israel exactly like Jesus would because I represent Jesus to Israel. Church, we represent Jesus to our neighbors. We represent Jesus to our families, to our children, to our spouses, to our co-workers. Does your life actually embody the heart of someone who would give up everything for someone else to find wholeness? I'd like to think that mine does, but I know most of the time it doesn't. And that, that's not in here to condemn us. We talked about this. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And there's nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of God. But I'm telling you, it's hard. It's hard to live a life that is just completely not about yourself because we're, we're programmed to care about ourselves. That's literally what the world every day feeds you. Like, you need this, and you need that, and you need this, and you need this house, and you need this car, and you need, th- if you don't have this, then you're a failure, whatever it might look like. It's a lie. But in the middle of that good news that Paul is telling us that nothing can condemn you and nothing can separate you is even more good news. And it's not just good news for you. It is good news for the entire world. It is that God is determined to use your life for good. That God has a plan for your life that it will not fail. The word of God will not fail in your life. And his plan for the world looks like you looking like him. It looks like you bearing his image. You know, if there's one thing that I hope that people can say when they think and they talk about our church here in Detroit, Michigan, in this little corner of Detroit, southwest Mexican town, I I want them to think, man, those people reflected Jesus. They just reflected Jesus. If somebody could live in this community, maybe they live next door, they live across the street, whatever it might be, and they never even step foot in our door. And then 20 years later, maybe they're not even living in Detroit anymore, and somebody asks them about this little church, Courage Church from their neighborhood. Hey, do you remember that church? I hope that they say something like, they were mercy people. They were grace people. They were love people. They were all about love me no matter what I do people. They gave my kids backpacks, even though I never went to service. They gave our kids an entire Christmas, even though we never went to service. They fed me at their big table when I was hungry, even though I never put a penny in the offering plate. And I never brought any food to the meals. They cleaned up the neighborhood, even though nobody seemed to care that they did it. This is what I want people to think of when they think about our church if they don't know Jesus. I want them to think, you know what? I'm not really sure what Jesus looks like. 
But my guess is he looks something like that. He looks something like them. Wouldn't that be great? I believe that's what we were created for, who we were created to be.